That's enough. That's enough. They just want. What you got to do is leave them uh, wanting more. So I don't know about Mr. Whipple there. Uh, oh, oh yes, uh, we would like to salute. Before we go any further, we would like to salute a new development in the American commercial. See, I think that the American commercial tells a great deal about the the spirit of the country and the uh, the joie de vivre that may or may not be uh, evident in the country, or uh, you know, just general uh, social. Uh, uh, no, the uh, the geist, the zeitgeist, the world around, you know, the spirit, the atmosphere. Commercial really tells a lot. <laughs> and and uh, uh, there's a new trend in commercials, especially automobile commercials, which I think bears uh, commenting on, or at least recording for posterity. It's the first time I've ever seen commercials where cars will say proudly and unequivocally, with absolute uh, note of uh, fervor in their voice, that they look like another car. Have you seen those commercials? <laughs> and uh, they even uh, they even give you handy hints on how to tell the minute differences in their car from the other car. You see, uh, of course, you know cars used to be very proud of the fact that they were distinct and unusual, but now cars. Uh, are now beginning to sell themselves by, let's say, guilt by almost association, and uh, I think this is a should be should be uh, you know recognized. And another thing that we should recognize in this age of uh, of uh, oh yes, so there will there will come a time when uh, various other things will follow that lead. Uh, there will be a guy saw, uh, seen swilling a soft drink, so he and he said, "My God, I I'd have sworn this was Dr Pepper." And, uh, and the voice will say, yes, you can't tell this from... And uh, <laughs> great In other words, imitation is not only the sincerest form of flattery, it's also the quickest way to get rich. So, uh, you like that, huh? Dum, da, dum, dum. Now, for those of you who... Uh, oh, yes, oh, yes. Uh, in, other, in any other field, it would be called plagiarization. It would be called, uh, you know, to plagiarize. But uh, plagiarizing has always been with us. Probably the first caveman that drew a picture on the wall, some guy was sneaking around in the back copying it and uh, tossing it around to his friends. You know, look what I did, friends. <laughs> it's, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's a human tendency. It's, uh, there must have been a moment in a, in a lemming's life when he was going over the cliff when a little voice said, What the hell are you doing this for? But he did it, didn't he, gang? He went right at it. But, uh, you know, guy has to do what he does. Well, uh, oh, yes, uh, it is uh, spring, and, of course, springtime always means uh, nutty time. 
and uh, since uh, we're all part and parcel of the same uh, the same uh, atmospheric conditions which operate on us, who was it who said, uh, "No, no, I don't want to bring him in." No, no, controversial author. I'm going to bring him in there. Uh, <laughs> won't even, I won't even mention his quotation. I'll just think about it. Quotation, I'll send it out to you. Controversial author made a quotation about spring. Oh, yes, speaking of nuttiness, I, I like to pick it up once in a while in uh, TV Guide. For example, here's a little one-line description of a typical, uh, of a typical television offering of our day. Emergency! That's a great name for a show, anyway. Emergency! And here's the title, or the preface, the little kind of capsule description of the show. Pressure 185. An embarrassed chef refuses to admit he set his kitchen on fire. Gee, that's exciting. As <laughs> Dobie Gillis discovers that somebody has put Spanish fly in his, in his oval team. And the exciting things that happen after that make up tonight's well, um, have you noticed, though, that, that, that people don't want to be surprised? They really don't. And that's why they always publish in TV Guide who the, tonight's surprise mystery guest is going to be. Tonight's mystery guest of uh, Orlando, Tony Orlando. By the way, have, have you ever figured out a way to tell uh, Tony Orlando apart from Freddie Prinz? There is a rumor that they're the same guy. They are? Did you say that? That's amazing, yes. Very talented. He plays all, both those roles. That's very interesting. Uh, I know he's not Geraldo Rivera. I know that. No, there is a rumor that Geraldo Rivera is the father of both of those guys. So, uh, you know, these, these, of course, these rumors are ugly anyway. I don't like to bring ugly rumors in there. Hey, hey, they've already started the bidding, you know, for big-time uh, anchormen now. Yes, uh, I saw a headline the other day, and, of course... Remember all the Barbara Walters uh, brouhaha, uh, or uh, as Lee puts it, the uh, uh, <laughs> the Barbara Walters row. But uh, you recall all that, you know, that all that business about the million dollars and so on a week, a month, or was it a year, or an hour, or a week, or whatever it is. It's got to happen. It really has to happen. I mean, Walter Cronkite's got to hold out, and then of course, can John Chancellor be far behind? And uh, then eventually, uh, yes, eventually there will be a, a, a fourth network will break out, you know, like the, like World Football. Offer Barbara Walters a hundred million dollars just to be there, you know. <laughs> and it's got it's 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 got to happen. It's uh, it's uh, it's all in the wings, waiting. Oh yes, I say that 1980 will see things that we in 1976 will hardly be able to uh, understand. I really do, I really believe that. Uh, but uh, uh, one of the other things that we must point out to you is that uh, people today are looking for fantastic ways to escape. Fantastic meaning fantasy. Escape. To run away. Uh, do you know that you can now buy a uh, a complete Daniel Boone outdoor leisure suit? Very nice. Yes, it's uh, it's got fringe on it. And uh, it's got a little, pi- a little place for your powder horn. And uh, when you stand out there at the barbecue and uh, <laughs> you're roasting your bear meat, you can wear your little Daniel Boone leisure suit made of uh, non-fading polyethylene fabric, two-way stretch, which uh, Daniel himself would have enjoyed. Old Daniel. But uh, these are all part and parcel of the American way of life. 
And escape has always been an American dream. They, well, that's why those guys went west in the first place. Most of them, although they, you know, they pretended that they had to populate the West. And every, everybody gives, in his own way, a colorful, uh, unbelievable usually, but nevertheless we all choose to believe it because rock one guy's boat and he's going to be rocking yours. Uh, that's an old <laughs> human problem too. So uh, everybody has to give an excuse for what he has to do that has nothing to do with the real reason he's doing it. Like... Uh, uh, you know, people will say, Madge, we have to have a divorce because it's for the good of the children. <laughs> that ain't why he wants a divorce. <laughs> oh, no, no way. He, he could see himself, you know, swinging from the rafters in Las Vegas. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, we got to invent these little excuses. It makes life easier. And uh, it keeps, it, what it does is keep the gunfire down. Uh, generally, I think gunfire is always just below the surface of uh, almost every uh, placid stream. Gunfire in one form or another. But uh, I must say, before we get started, that escape is an American tradition. And uh, in the bicentennial sense, uh, the, the movement west, uh, why guys came from England in the first place to squat in the middle of the howling wilderness now, they pretend a lot of them said, it's religious freedom. Well, uh, maybe a few. But uh, it was a desire to, to, to split, which, uh, which very definitely plays a role <laughs> at all times in man's history. This is also called the migratory drive, meaning you have a desire to get the hell out of wherever you are at this point and keep moving. A terrible drive. That's why that's why Nader is having trouble getting people to give up their cars, because it's a basic urge, but a really a basic urge to to, to keep going. Uh, it started with the roller skate, that they continued with the pogo stick. Uh, you know, to, to run, to go, to move. Uh, in fact, uh, you know, there's a there's a there's an old folk comment that, that carries this out. The guy says, "Man, if." If God had determined that Madge would be in one place, he'd have been born with an anchor. Yep. <laughs> I just invented that folk. Uh, so you can use it if you want, but don't don't say Shepard said it. Nobody ever says, oh, come on, that guy. So what you have to say, it's an old Kentucky folk expression that gives it a certain pattern of folk wisdom. Say, yeah, you want me to practice it again for you? If man... If, if if God had wanted man to tra uh, wanted man to remain in one spot, if God had wanted man to remain where he was, he'd have been born with an anchor. Or uh, conversely, you put it another way, if uh, if God had not wanted man to go, he wouldn't have given him them feet. Uh, so you know you can use that, but I kind of like the anchor thing better. Not, we're not like the dandelion, you know, which has a root that goes down two and a half feet as I learned now from TV commercials. Uh, although I have known some people whose roots, unfortunately, extended to the center of the earth. Uh, you couldn't move them with a, you know, with a 12-gauge shotgun. <laughs> well, uh, yeah, since it's, uh, you know, we're getting into the springtime here, we're clearing up a lot of correspondence. We have a letter here from a teacher who writes from Queens. It says, uh, Dear Mr. Shepard, uh, you must get all kinds of letters in your work. Uh, would you please tell me what happens to your ego and how do you feel when you get a letter that 
tells you that you're rotten and you're... <laughs> well, that's a good question. I can only say this, and this is a serious comment. Anybody who's in show business, especially anyone who's, who's a uh, humorist or a comic, is used to the fact that uh, from, from the very start of your career, there's always somebody who's writing a letter saying, you're rotten, unfunny, dull, boring, and pompous. Incidentally, they usually do this in dull, boring, pompous terms. And because uh, many people simply just don't vibrate the humor. Uh, anything that's humorous is called non-adult. Uh, <laughs> yes, of course, adults are never humorous. Not at all. They're pompous. And uh, anyone who wants to be an adult... Uh, George Aid said it. He says, if you wish to be accepted among the high and mighty, work on your pomposity. <laughs> it's very important. So, uh, nevertheless, uh, this type of letter, is, is, you, you get this, and, and every time you get one of these letters, you usually get about 38 letters that say they dig you. So, uh, for every guy that thinks you're rotten and you should be blasted out of the, uh, out of the firmament, there's 50 guys who dig it. Uh, and, and everybody, uh, you know, is, uh, this is one of those things you just get used to. You don't even... In fact, right from the very beginning, I remember a guy who, a friend of mine who later became a very a world famous comic uh, he uh, he said uh, he says that uh, you know you're not doing it Shepard he says you're really not getting to people if you don't get angry letters <laughs> and you know that's very hard to believe because most people in their work uh, you know it's quite the opposite most people in their work if they ever get an angry letter about how rotten they do their work they're you know they're flipping but in the, in the world of the comic, if he stops getting angry letters, then he knows he's having problems because he's really not, he's not saying anything anymore. You know, so get them angry letters in here, folks. Let's get Shepard fired by the weekend, right? <laughs> Incidentally, speaking of, uh, of, uh, of, of the attempt to, uh, to escape, you know, people, you see it all over, you know. Part of, uh, part of the escape syndrome is the Winnebago cult. Uh, and, and you notice all the Winnebago's, all the various uh, trailers and, and tent trailers, and all have very romantic names like Apache. Uh, <laughs> somehow, you're, you're, you're a migratory Indian. You got this two weeks off from the Dumont plant, and now you're on the road, say, and you're, you're an Apache, and uh, you're going forever and ever and ever with the wind blowing in your hair. Well, for anybody... I, I'll give you uh, I'll give you a brass figlegi with bronze oak leaf palm. Who wrote a famous short story? Speaking of escape, and uh, one of the uh, one of the great uh, escape things that people have always had in their head is the bird. The bird has always been a symbol in people's heads somehow for freedom. It always has. This is this is one of the reasons why we have uh, we have the eagle. You know, the eagle is is a is a is a bird uh, that's uh, rarely found in a cage with budgies, and uh, you know he's a bird that is a, is you know he's kind of a synonymous with freedom and flight and and great heights. The eagle, escape. You notice that uh, our national symbol is not the turtle. It is not. Uh, it is not an earthbound creature. And uh, many, many countries have taken as the symbol a bird. Uh, the bird. 
What other country has a famous bird as a symbol? It's an English-speaking country. And what bird is it? All right, I'll give you a clue. It's, uh, it's, in, the, it's in the totally different hemisphere. The other half of 12,000 miles away. And they're always singing the wa waltzing Matilda. Okay, Australia. Australia. What is their bird? They, they, have, a, they have a symbol. And uh, the bird is a very common symbol. So very early in man's uh, walking around, yeah, I know there's a lot of commercial, okay, walking around in man's daily life, uh, it must have been very early in the caveman's life when he looked up at the sky and saw those birds and briefly had a feeling that he would like to be able to do that. You know, what the bird does, which is, you know, just sails with so effortlessly over all the country where... Uh, you know, everybody else has to struggle up down one side of a hill and up down the other side of the hill and swim over the creek and, and struggle through the woods, but the bird just sails over it all, right? Just sails along. And uh, due to the fact that the bird is an aerodynamic creature, he has an innate beauty to him. He has to be streamlined. There are no square birds. Not at all. So he's got that even even the little short fat birds like owls still when they fly they have a, a, they have a zeppelin shape but you notice they they they're they're beautifully tapered nicely nicely uh, aerodynamically designed so this is an exciting thing to you from the very earliest time of your life uh, you see birds well man is always you know it's been, it, it, the idea of flying now flying frightens many people but on the other hand they're fascinated by it uh, I think there are two kinds of people really basically going all the way back to our earliest childhood maybe even beyond uh, there's the nesters and the movers and the nesters are people who instinctively want to dig a hole in the ground and creep down into it and pull it over them and hide <laughs> Those are nesters. They, they, and the more they, you see them in the offices often. A, a guy who's afraid in his office, who's a nester in his office, will, 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 will tack things up all over the wall. He'll pile stuff up on the desk. And so he's surrounded like a great, great drift of stuff that protects him. And the, the more stuff he piles up on the walls and the floor and every place, the more secure he feels in there. It's a, it's a nest he builds. And uh, it's the jackdaw nest. You bring stuff in and hide things and all around the desk and pile it up. It takes a lot of courage to have this nice, clean, smooth, uncluttered desk, uh, which is not a nest at all. It's just a desk. And so you see nests. And then old ladies, for example, tend to collect doilies and furniture. And you see just one old lady will live in a place and she'll have 45 chairs around there in the living room. And she'll have... <laughs> You'll have a dining room table with eight places around it. And it's, a, it's a nest. It's a, a lot of curtains and drapes that shut out the world. And Venetian blinds and all kinds of things that stop the light from coming in. It's a nest. Well, these people are almost instinctively against flying. Because flying is the very reverse of nesting. Uh, you've even divorced yourself from the earth. And uh, one, of the most, uh, one of the most exciting uh, things to most kids. Kids are particularly prone to this flight. They want to get going. Is the kite syndrome? 
You know, one of the great sights in my life, a very funny little sight, which you never would expect. Uh, I was in a town a few years back in central Nigeria. And this is a town you had to travel in from Lagos, which is near the coast. It's on the coast. In fact, you had to travel directly inland, away from Lagos, like a couple of hundred miles. And it was through all kinds of bush and brush and, and pretty wild country. And uh, one little tiny road that went in there. And finally we got into this town. And as we approached the town, the town is lying in a kind of a valley with hills that rose up around it. And it was a, a great vast town that was built flat. It looked like thousands of little uh, silvery sheets as you came from a distance because it was all made of, of uh, galvanized iron and stuff, tin. And the sun was flashing off the roofs. But as you came closer to it, you saw up in the air there were hundreds of kites just drifting over the town, red and green and yellow, tri all the same kind, triangular kite, a little the, the, the classical triangular-shaped kite. And the kids obviously were all flying kites. They, they flew kites there. It was really a great sight to see these kites floating in this Nigerian air as uh, you came down this trail, down, down a long hill into this town. And... It was, you know, it was kind of a beautiful scene. And you see kites. Always in the spring, people fly kites. They, they, they don't often fly kites in the winter. And yet, there is a nice breeze in the winter. Uh, the wind blows. In fact, there's often a steadier breeze in the winter than there is in the summer. And yet, you don't find many kite flyers in the winter. But uh, it's quite rare. But spring is the kite time. And it is a, it is a deep-seated urge. Uh, I don't know of many girl kite flyers. There are probably the, the, many of them. I don't know about them. I just never really saw many. In fact, uh, uh, I, have you seen this new book? Uh, Will Yeldon, for example, wrote a book called, it's a great book if you're into kites, called uh, Kites and Kite Flying. And it's a, a like a historical book and tells you how to make all these great kites. <laughs> and it's a kite book. It's about real kites, not the... Not the, you know, little gimmicky uh, Madison Avenue kites, but real kites of all kinds. And uh, one, of the, one of the big things that, uh, that hit me when I was a kid, one of the, uh, as a gift, I was given, uh, first of all, most of us made our own kites. And everybody flew kites when I was a kid. But we made them. And it's very easy to make a kite. Uh, a kite is a simple thing to make, but it's not a simple thing to make well. Most people just, you know, they put a couple of sticks together. And the first kites I ever made were kites we, I got out of the model shop and I bit myself uh, a couple of big pieces of, uh, of balsa wood, uh, usually a quarter inch thick by uh, something like three-eighths, something like the flat strips, you know, nice big long piece of good hard balsa wood and uh, very light. And I'd look over all the balsa that the guy had. He had it usually sitting up in a in a kind of a rack where you could pick the different sizes, and you pick this, these two good pieces of balsa that don't have any weak spots in them. And you test them, and then you finally buy them. And, you, and uh, building the kite, then, is quite simple, if you know how to do it. And I would cover it with airplane paper, the kind of paper that, uh, that uh, you use to cover airplane models. I'd buy myself a couple of sheets of good... Uh, good uh, Japanese rice paper, which is what this kind of uh, airplane paper is. 
And then after you finish the kite, you spray the kite, in case you're interested. You, you should. Now, I'm telling you as an expert kite maker here. In other words, well, okay, you don't have to spray it, but if you do spray your kite, it makes it tougher and does not add a great deal to the weight. What you do is take a light spray of clear airplane dope, you know, the kind that they spray on a, a model, and just spray it very lightly so that it gives it a little toughness. And then... Uh, then uh, select your string. Of course, uh, today you can get some really great monofilament lines to fly a kite with, but g get yourself a, a, a very light silk string. Often we used to use uh, bait casting line, which has a pretty good tensile strength, you know. And and then you'd get this kite. This kite would rise up. Well, after after uh, we started uh, experimenting with kites of you know the traditional uh, diamond-shaped kite, kind of a lopsided diamond. Uh, which is just a a two a, a, a cruciform, a cross form. Uh, you move into the more sophisticated kites, which really fly. Let me tell you, a box kite is a beautiful flyer, and uh, you really you, and they'll fly in a very light breeze, and uh, you can get a good box kite up. Well, a a great a kind of a sub fad began to develop. And, uh, you know, most people think in terms of building the very spectacular kites, like a fish, Chinese, Japanese kites with the fish and the dragons and all this kind of stuff. Uh, they're okay. Uh, but that's, that's, uh, that's another tradition. Uh, the Batman kite is not a real kite. It's a gimmick. But then when you start getting into, really getting into the kites, you start experimenting with, with really exotic kites. And so there was this kid named Johnny Falk, a fantastic kite builder in the neighborhood, and he built a, a really beautiful biplane kite. Now, this is a kite that had two planes, two wings on it, really like biplane wings. And it was, one wing was yellow, one was blue. I remember he had these two wings, and he had a, he had, he had a small framework that came down, like an open fuselage, and he had a, what would be, in effect, a rudder, and then he had a, a stabilizer that came out the front. It looked like a biplane, a little bit like the Wright-type airplane. Wow, what a flyer. That thing, you know, he'd, say, he'd sit up there, and I'll bet none of you could actually tell me what the world's record right now, the highest altitude ever achieved by a kite without artificial gimmicks, you know, like attaching it to an airplane or something. What was the highest ever achieved by a kite? You would be astounded <laughs> how high a kite can get. You know, I knew a guy, uh, speaking of uh, kites and escape, uh, I knew a guy who <laughs> I came over to see him one time, this is a couple of years back, and he had a, an office on Madison Avenue using one of these little cubicles uh, that was in a big agency. And it was one of the rare agencies, which incidentally is on Madison Avenue. For those of you who don't live in New York, most of the agencies are not on Madison Avenue. Uh, they're, they're just simply not. There's all kinds of them on Lexington and many of them on, uh, on Park. Uh, some of them are 3rd Avenue. But this guy was really in a true Madison Avenue agency. So uh, he's way up on the 38th floor, 46th floor or something in this big glass building. And uh, he, he had this uh, this window, and these windows, you could open them up a little bit, see, just a little bit, like you could swing them out, maybe about a foot and a half. And, and uh, you, they, they were cleverly cut so that the ad exec could not jump out. 
you see. <laughs> They're always afraid. Some guy's going to say, oh, I've had it. You know, out he goes. See, it's very bad public image to suddenly find three account execs flying through the air simultaneously in formation, you know, holding hands that the guys that work on the beer commercial, see, as they vol plane down, but uh, <laughs> with no shoots. Uh, however, uh, uh, <laughs> streaming match covers that have the uh, agency slogan on it. But uh, nevertheless, this guy, one day I came over to see him, and we were going to go out to lunch. And I came up the elevator, and I go through the, the hushed floors, uh, past all the uh, hushed uh, receptionists, they even had color-coded receptionists. You know, every every uh, department had a girl in a different uh, chic uh, Bianchi costume. You know, elegancy. They had pink telephones. I finally get to this guy's office, and the girl says, "Go right in. Uh, he's waiting for you." So I go in, and I don't see him. And uh, I look around, and I see his desk. See, his desk is. Uh, is right there in front of the window, and I, I walk over to the desk, and I, I hear a sort of a scuffling and a grunting, and there he is. He's down behind the desk. And then I see coming out from behind the desk is a string going out the window. And this guy is flying a kite. <laughs> I said, but Stan, what are you doing? Shh, don't say anything. Every, every, every lunch hour, for about 15, 20 minutes, I find my box kite out out of the window when the wind is in the right direction. And he assembles it and he sticks it out the window. The updraft takes it out. And there was his kite flying out there, beautiful, clear, and proud. And it was hanging out there over, over Lexington Avenue. And you could just see it up there amid the pigeons, you know, and the Jersey crud that was drifting down. And I said, Stan, my God, you're an incurable romantic. He says, yeah, but i got to cover my tracks. I said, what do you mean cover your tracks? He said, well, take a good look at it. I said, take a good look at what? He says, the kite. Look carefully. Take, the, take these binoculars. Look at it. So I take the glasses and I look up at it. There, right on it, was the slogan of the Rice Krispies Company. You know, snap, crackle, pop, cereal. <laughs> See, he was on the Rice Krispies account. So in case somebody came in and yelled at him, he, you know, you don't fly kites around here on our time. He always said, well, I'm trying out a new gimmick, you know. We're going to send all kinds of kids. You see the whole thing. Man has to keep covering his tracks. Like I say, you invent an excuse for everything you do, but it's never the real reason. And so we're getting a divorce for the kids' sake. You've been listening to Gene Shepard. Humorist, author, and recipient of the Mark Twain Award for 1976.